take words like modesty, humility, or hope out of the vocabulary. So it's not a matter of, I hope to achieve these things. It's, we will achieve these things, or even we are achieving these things. From Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs, it's Ideas Elevated, the podcast that elevates innovative entrepreneurs and their ideas. I'm Danielle Kahn, the head of Lift Labs, and today we're bringing you a special episode focusing on the life of female founders. Earlier this year, we were inspired by our community to launch a female founder and funder meetup group for women to ask each other off-the-record questions. It's become a popular place for insights on everything from founding to fundraising. Today, we're giving you a seat at that table. We'll talk about the access and funding gap, what's being done to overcome it, and lessons for all women in starting and growing a business. You'll hear from a university professor who runs an angel investment group, an expert on unconscious bias, and a bootstrapping entrepreneur. Important advice for women and men is now on Ideas Elevated. Last, I guess, maybe in April, we started a female founder and funder meetup the fourth Friday of every month. And every single month, more and more women keep showing up. It has become a really safe place for founders and funders to ask questions that they may have been a little fearful to ask before. And every time we show up, it is very inspiring. One of the people whose idea it was to run that is Ellen Weber with us today. Ellen is the executive director of Temple University's Innovation and Entrepreneurship Institute and Mid-Atlantic Diamond Ventures. She also is the executive director of Robin Hood Ventures, a leading angel group that is fueling startup growth right here in Philadelphia. Welcome, Ellen. Thank you. Next up, as one of our guests, Carolyn Horner, the co-founder of Gen Z. And Gen Z is an app that makes it easy for parents to buy perfectly fitting shoes for young kids. And then our next guest is Zway Kwok. And she is the author, founder, and CEO of Calm Clarity. And uh, Zway grew up in Philadelphia, in the inner city. She graduated from Harvard, Wharton, built an international career in management consulting and private equity. She started life in poverty as a refugee from Vietnam. And she is really now building a company called Calm Clarity to share the neuroscience techniques that she developed to heal post-traumatic stress disorder. I can't wait to hear more, more from you. So welcome. Thank you. Yeah. And welcome, everybody. First, let's just start with a, a basic question of why did you show up? Why did the female founder funder meetup appeal to you? And Carolyn, do you want to start with that? Sure. So my co-founder, Eve, and I came to the first meetup mainly because we were so excited that something like this was happening in Philadelphia. We had just started raising our seed round for our company, Gen Z, um, and really needed not only mentors who were funders, but also founders themselves and had gone through this process. Um, and so this really was the best place to find those people and who could walk us through the process. What have you found so far the most valuable tip that you've learned at the meetup? Probably to be patient. I think you jump into the seed round and think that things are going to happen really fast. And really what mentors 
like Ellen and I've actually taught us is it takes a lot of patience and learning and reiterating on your pitch and your deck and your company vision to start making traction with funders here in Philadelphia. And so if you get a no the first time from a particular angel group or investment group, that's not always a no. And to keep going and showing that you're making improvement actually gets the conversation further in the long run. Great. So what about you? What, what brings you to Lift Labs and, and this meetup? Sure. Well, I have an interesting background in, in the sense that I used to be a funder. Mm-hmm. I used to do private equity growth capital investments in Southeast Asia, but I'm not that familiar with the investment community here in Philadelphia. And one thing I realized you know, from my work is that social capital really, really matters. And so investors are more willing to talk to you and open the door for you if they know who you are. And it's a lot easier to get connected if you are part of a community. And so I've been going to Philly New Tech meetups and a number of other resources, but found that in that space, there was always only like a handful of women, like it's like 10% women max and, and not very many people of color either. And so I was really curious what a female founder community would feel like, because I'd never been part of such a community before. And so I thought, let's just show up and, and, and experience this. And I've been pleasantly surprised how nurturing and how authentic and vulnerable people are here and how invested that the funders are. People like Ellen and Beth and others who come are genuinely caring and they really want to see us succeed. And so the level of information sharing and resources that people are providing is top notch. And that's why I keep coming back. Great. What's the number one tip that you've been given since coming to this that you keep in the back of your head? Ellen said something like that today. Be aggressive. Don't be conservative. And I think that's something that really is a challenge for me and a lot of women is that we do tend to be very modest about what we can achieve and what milestones that we can go for. And one of the difference I've seen in terms of gender, because I was on the funding side, is that male entrepreneurs, they just shoot for the sky and they don't care if the numbers make no sense. Whereas I think many women are very meticulous about these numbers and we want to feel that we can really back it up. And so I have to keep reminding myself that I got this and I can do this. But a lot of times I do, you know, that self-talk is quite critical. That's a great point. I remember reading once that when there's a job posted, men will apply to a job that they're not qualified for and women will not. And it's probably the same thing when walking in and asking a funder for money, they feel a need to be perfect and have something finished before throwing their idea on the wall and saying, hey, would you fund this? So, Ellen, Mm -hmm. you get to hear a lot of pitches as a professor, but as someone who runs an angel group and is an investor herself. Talk about this from your perspective. And before we start, uh, the one thing I definitely want to give a shout out, it was Ellen's idea. We were chatting about, you know, the need for this group. And she had said, you know, it'd be great to do a regular meetup. And it generally has been volunteer run. And it just hasn't stuck because there isn't someone running it. Um, And so we've collaborated on this event. And Melissa Lay on our team at Lift Labs is the one who does all of the program management, make sure that that it happens. So I guess starting from thank you <laughs> for uh, thank you for this great idea and, and being such a great collaborator. And um, from your perspective, you know, you've been through this for many years. 
and you've seen what works, you've seen what fails, you know, from a from a meetup group and and a community of of women building companies and funding them. Why is something like this so valuable? There's a number of women funders in the region who have been doing everything we can to eliminate the funding gap for women entrepreneurs. And we all we all know the details behind that. And just as Danielle said, we all do it in our spare time, you know, walk and talks and taking meetings and things like that. And we just felt so strongly that if we could create a forum that made it really safe for women to be able to ask the questions and to get to know us, that we could really create something great. And it's just been so wonderful seeing people show up every month. And as you said, the funders have been really committed to this too, which I've been excited to see. And we're getting just as much out of it as the founders are because we can really focus our energy and efforts in helping people. And it's just been, it's been terrific. And we've had people who have come in. We had last time, I think somebody came from New York. Someone came down, came in from Denver. I think more and more they're going to hear about this and want to attend and be a part of it. Today's event, 50% of the crowd had not been here before. So the more newcomers come to the table is very exciting as well. And, you know, you've been through this before (laughs) for many years. Why is a safe place so important for women? So there's a number of things. I think sometimes we talked about the perfection issue. I think sometimes women may be afraid to ask questions to appear dumb, that they feel that they should know these things. And there's no way you could know these things if you haven't been through it before. And so I think just saying... It's okay to ask any question you want. And I hope everyone feels like their questions are being, you know, treated respectfully. I think it's that idea of there truly any questions you want to ask are fine. And I think that's what's been so important. And just making sure you get hurt. Sometimes, you know, I still find in the business world when I'm in a meeting and I'm I'm the woman at the table and there's five guys, I, I can't get my word heard. Watching the debates has been fascinating watching the different techniques that women have to use to be heard without being perceived as interrupting. And so I just think having a place where all questions are safe and we're going to start with the fundamentals and build our way up, you know, with a little bit of presentation and then the one-on-one hours, I just think that's a good way to go. Just as a follow-up to what uh, Zway mentioned earlier, you said something this morning that stood out to me. One of the founders here talked about modesty or being conservative and you gave her really great advice, which I would love you to share. With, with oh, I just said, I said, take words like modesty, you know, humility, the word just or hope or hope out of the vocabulary. So it's not a matter of, I hope to achieve these things. It's we will achieve these things, or even we are achieving these things by doing this, this, and this. And so that is one of the things I still see women doing, kind of minimizing progress or, you know, having this modesty that I think can be defeating, especially when talking to men who don't have that kind of filter. So yeah, that is my advice. That's awesome. Carolyn, what are some of the struggles you've been going through as a female founder? I think it touches on some points that we were making before in terms of what women who are pitching, what standards they're held to as opposed to their male counterparts. And so you hear often that women founders are judged on their metrics, even if they're at the same stage as 
other companies that have an idea, have a product that's working, that's in the market, maybe have early adopters. We got questions immediately after launch about our customer acquisition costs and our lifetime value. And these are metrics that companies don't really start understanding for a few months. And we were being asked about them on day one. And so sometimes that felt like a little premature and that rather than being just judged on our idea and our ability to get those numbers to where they needed to be, they needed to be there at that moment. And so I think a lot of female founders actually experience that when they're fundraising. And Zway, what about you? What are some of uh, your building calm clarity? What are you seeing as a female founder that, you know, you think is very different journey than say a male founder would be? I think sometimes these challenges create opportunities and there is a lot of unconscious bias, especially when you're a woman and you're a woman of color. And so I decided to just try to embrace it by creating an unconscious bias training to turn this type of handicap into a strength. And so now I go to companies where, you know, maybe there aren't a lot of females in leadership positions or people of color who are represented in leadership positions and talk about how they could be more inclusive. And because of my own background and the fact that I navigate such wide socioeconomic spaces, right, I go from the inner city to, you know, CEO boardrooms, um, there's some credibility there on what it takes to succeed and to navigate issues of bias, prejudice, discrimination and exclusion. So I find if you can take all these things that work against you and turn them into strengths, then you have actually even more expertise than the people who you're coming to. And so what I found interesting about the VC world is that most of the VCs are men. And when they see startup leaders who are male and they see themselves in them, they can see the upside. But when female founders come in and they're not used to seeing female founders, then the amygdala activates and they're thinking about the downside, which is why they're asking these questions. And then it becomes your job to help them activate their dopamine system and see the upside, right? So you can use neuroscience to work in your favor. And so that's been the story of my life, thinking through all the ways in, my, in which my brain can work against me and thinking through what it would what it take to rewire my brain so that I can be more successful. And by doing that, how can I help change society and change mindsets and change the way other people operate in the world so they can all function and realize, like function at their fullest potential? The interesting thing, just to add on to what you were saying, is that it's not just men that ask women the downside questions. So research shows that women funders also immediately go to the downside questions. Now, you were talking about metrics before, and I see that as a little bit different. And I had not observed that women get asked more questions about metrics than men do. So I'm going to pay attention to that, you know, in the next few presentation sessions. But it is true that I always do encourage women. Well, I encourage everyone to use metrics, but I really encourage women to, because I think it is one of the things that helps them tell the story. I will say I do observe men throwing out the metrics early there and whether they're true or not, I don't know. And when a woman comes in with a metric, you know that they have researched that to the nth degree and it's a perfect number. So I'm going to have to really pay attention. I think that's an interesting point that you brought up. Yeah, I think 
there are two types of metrics, one about the industry. And that's really helped us because oftentimes when we walk into a, a room of investors that aren't that diverse, the product that I'm building is a shoe sizing app for kids. And so our core customer are young, busy millennial parents, and that's not often who I'm pitching to. And so framing the conversation with, you know, this is a mobile app. A lot of people are are shopping on mobile apps. A lot of millennials are becoming parents. Um, and, and really uh, emphasizing that with metrics has been helpful. But there is right after launch having to understand like what the average order value was and being able to predict that over a couple years just seemed a little aggressive. And I'm, I'm curious, Ellen, just when you're asking for three-year projections, what are the main reasonings behind that in terms of like understanding where you are in six months compared to where you're going in three years. You just want to understand your mindset that you're thinking about building out a scalable company and that you're thinking about which markets you're going to tap into and that you have kind of like a, a reasonable approach to we are going to lose money. The first, like sometimes we'll see forecasts that show in year one, they don't say 2019, they say in year one, we're going to have 5 million of sales. Well, there's no way in year one, you're going to have 5 million of sales, right? So we're really just looking for how do you think about these things? How big are you trying to grow? Do you understand your costs? And what would your margins look like? We don't have any expectation of accuracy in the projections. And that's one of the things I try and tell people. It's really about how you're thinking. Our meetup that we do once a month is once a month for a couple hours. What are you doing outside of that on a regular basis that you find most useful to you in terms of resources, networking, one-on-one meetings? How do you stay focused? What Talk about a little bit about your process as founders. Sway, so, do you want to start with that? I found it really helpful to build a board. And so I actually am a social entrepreneur. I run uh, two social ventures. The first one is Calm Clarity, where we take a neuroscience and mindfulness approach to tackling social challenges. And, you know, unconscious bias being one of the biggest social challenges there is right now. And one of the things I realize is a barrier for socioeconomic inclusion is that a lot of first generation college students, they go to college they can't navigate it. They don't have the resources or the life skills to do so. There's no mentors or role models. And then many of them fall through the cracks, drop out of school, don't come back. And the ones that do graduate, like myself, I was unemployed for six months, right? It took a while to find a job. And a lot of it was because of the lack of social capital, just not knowing who to talk to, how to get yourself into the right information flow. And I feel like that challenge is still here with me as a first generation college graduate, as a person of color from the inner city whose parents can't open doors. And in fact, I spent a lot of time taking care of my parents and helping them navigate the spaces that they have to go through. And I therefore make a big effort to build a board so that I have access to their social capital. And I try to check in with them, tell them what's going on and ask them for help in solving some of the challenges I face. They would all say I could be more proactive. Sometimes I don't like asking for help unless I feel like I have a path forward. I feel like I have to prove that I deserve the help before I ask for it, which I think it's still like a Jedi mind game I need to get over. And the other thing that it's really helpful. It's to build 
I don't know what you call this, but like a community of founders around me. So this female founders group is new and very helpful. But one of my social ventures, the Collective Success Network, got accepted into the social impact cohort at CIC, Cambridge Innovation Center at 3675 Market Street. And that cohort, you know, includes Coded by Kids, Open Access Philly, um, and it's been really wonderful to run into these other founders and check in with them and hear about their issues. And, you know, especially people of color, because I think there are extra barriers that people of color face coming from non-dominant culture, not having the right vocabulary or the language, not understanding the cultural references and this continuous feeling of being out of place and being set up like as a model minority can create a lot of tension inside us. And especially for me, since I have the Harvard background, the Wharton background, like I am, you know, what people point to as a model minority, but I still have this challenge of not knowing where I'm going, right? Having no role models, having parents who I have to take care of and um, figuring out how to navigate all of my personal responsibilities and the violence in my community where I live. And yet like having to compete for the same resources at the same level and standard as people who come from much more affluent backgrounds. So that's like a lot of psychological issues and challenges and barriers. And having other founders who I can talk through that with has been really useful. Without getting into details or who has said things, what are some of the trends you see in that group, you know, for for those just as an eye opener for people who maybe wouldn't be a part of a not just gender, but ethnically diverse group of founders, you know, what are some of the real pain points there that you wish other people realized were a reality for you and others? There's this need to constantly prove yourself. And someone mentioned this phrase to me, which I found really helpful. They call it racial combat fatigue. Just having to deal with all these innocent questions about where you're from, whether you're educated, like why are you qualified to be here, justifying your presence in the room. I feel like I'm continuously underestimated because I'm quiet, I'm introverted, I'm not very aggressive until I take the podium and I start speaking. They're like, oh, you're the speaker. <laughs> I mean, I showed up at places and been asked if I'm the help, you know, because they just, they assume the person who looks like me, it's not going to be the speaker. And I just have to keep letting that go and just being like, you know, these people have stereotypes and associations of what people like me look like and what we do. They have no idea that I can be the boss or I can be the keynote speaker. So again and again, you know, I just have to keep letting this go and just doing the best job I can do in that moment. Very insightful. Carolyn, what about you? What, what do you do to stay energized and focused? Who are you surrounding yourself with? What's your, what's your week look like? My answer mimics sways in a lot of ways, mainly because I am a part of two meetup groups. One is with new founders in Philadelphia that are at a similar stage um, that Gen Z is. And we meet for dinner once a month and talk through similar problems that we're all having or not really problems, but just like big projects that we're tackling. So that's really helpful. And the second meetup is a group of women who are in the e-commerce world. And we again meet for dinner once a month. And so that's a really personal community that we can really be vulnerable and, and open up and also learn from each other. It's, you know, getting drinks for 20 minutes, but then really digging into that project. And then also, I think it's important to have a life outside of your company and your startup. For a couple of years, all I wanted to do was be surrounded by other people in the startup world because they really understood what I was doing. And my co-founder and I have since started taking a step back and sometimes, 
you know, making time for our friends and family that is really important to us. Awesome. Alan, as you look at the next five years in the female founder funder landscape, we're still at, I think it's 2.2% of all funding coming from VCs is going to female founders. Mm -hmm. And that was like two years in a row flat at 2.2%. And actually the percentage of funding going to women of color, I think is about 0.25%, which is another number right. that has also, to be. just the sad reality mm -hmm. all, all around. Mm -hmm. How does the game change five years from now? What does it look like? What would you envision? What's the dream? And actually, what do you think it would take? Mm -hmm. What's the moonshot on funding and investment that you think could get us there even faster? Well, I think there's a few things that need to happen. I think some of the women who are fundraising now have to have an exit, right? It's all about exits because that's what creates a community. And so when some of those women have exits and then they can fund, they'll fund other women that you need more funders in the region, but you also, it's not just people who are funders, but it's people who have had exits and it becomes, I think people who might have a um, unconscious bias about women, you know, once you start hearing about a lot of women having exits, I think it becomes, it just takes away whatever unconscious bias that they may have. So I think exits is really the key to success. So whatever we can do to help women in the community have exits, I think that will, that'll really move the needle. That makes a lot of sense. And I think for the two founders here, what's the one thing that you wish existed now? that you think is not in the ecosystem as a, either a support mechanism or, again, if you had a moonshot five years from now, what's the one thing you think will make it easier to raise money or not raise money, you know, and easier to bootstrap or easier to sell into a large company? What, what's that one thing that, that you think is the secret sauce or missing from the story today? When you're at a stage like we are where... Gen Z's working, we're on the app store, we have about 10,000 users, but we're not at a stage where we're big enough to be raising a series A round. It sometimes feels like we're too small to also be raising a seed round. So we're in this like weird in-between stage where those type of investors are really hard to identify. And so through our seed round, I'll call it, we had so many yes, but not nows. And so I think the one thing that could really change this ecosystem or really be better, at least for early stage founders to understand is what do you do when you're in that stage and what angel investors are there that would be willing to write a $25 or $50,000 check for the stage you're at. And I think those angels are hidden and you have to know other founders who have gotten investment from them um, or get warm introductions because you can't really find them on LinkedIn. And so that sort of community in Philadelphia, I think could really, really boost the startup scene here. And whether that's Philadelphia or any other, I'd I say, like second, yeah. <laughs> but even, you know, second, third tier cities mm -hmm. that are not New York and the Valley <laughs> um, and Tel Aviv. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're definitely the, the angel networks. And I, just as a follow up on that, Ellen, because you, that's your world. What's the secret sauce of getting more angel investors? And more angel investors to say yes at that stage. So 
one way of getting more angel investors, again, it comes back to exits, right? And that's, that is one of the things that affects second and third tier cities. And having even people in the large strategic companies think about being angel investors. Typically, it's entrepreneurs who become angel investors. If we can train and educate people in some of the large strategics to be investors, I think that would be great. In some cities, you see more movement. You know, the strategics launch tons and tons of startups. And in some communities, you don't see that as much. So I think, I think that's going to be something that becomes important. So that's why so I think there's education required that to help people understand that you can be an early stage investor. I think helping people learn that they can pool money. I mean, so a lot of regions have these angel groups, right? But exactly what Carolyn was talking about is how do you access the individual investors who are willing to write a check today And in return, they usually want some involvement with the company and then they'll bring it to the larger groups. So your question is, how do we create these people? And I think, you know, again, it's more exits. It's educating people on becoming investors and it's finding a way to decrease the friction in introducing some of the up and coming companies to these, you know, individual investors. That's great. And what what about you? So my path is a bit different because... We decided to bootstrap. And even the board told me, you're going to bootstrap this because it's a social venture and we don't really see a lot of companies interested in not having an exit, right? What we want to do is fund more social impact work. And we've also have a hybrid model where there's a nonprofit arm that allows us to raise uh, tax deductible contributions. And as I think about maybe what's missing, perhaps there's not enough guidelines around how do you start a business? How do you decide if bootstrapping is the right path versus raising investment? And having worked in the private equity VC space, there's a lot of negative reasons where I don't want to bring in investors because they can take over and hijack your mission. They can hijack your purpose. They can force an exit. The term sheets are very onerous. There's a lot of reasons why you may want to maintain full control. And I don't feel like that's discussed enough. And I think even though it would be nice for that 2.2% to increase to 50%, I kind of wonder if some of it may be that women are designing companies that may not be venture friendly. And the VC world was designed by men. It's a culture that is a very bro culture and it can turn off a lot of women investors as well. And it may not have a a mission. It may not have a social impact focus, right? It's, it's all about numbers in many ways and getting big, big, big exits. And there are mental health issues. A lot of the most successful founders are actually anxiety written and they can't sleep. So there are not a lot of negatives in the space that people don't really talk about the dark side of VCs and, and successful startups. So I just kind of wonder if there should be more transparency instead of just these stories of these unicorns being so successful, but what did it take for them to become unicorns and are the costs worth it, right? And maybe women who bootstrap, like Sarah Blakely from Spanx, you know, she's a billionaire and there's no VCs profiting off what she does. She has full control. And, and that's kind of my role model is try to become her rather than, you know, the people behind Facebook or, you know, Snapchat. I'd like to amplify that. I think there is such a focus on funding for the sake of funding. And that's what is rewarded and celebrated as opposed to people who are growing companies. And I think 
that is something we need to do. We need to celebrate more companies that grow. What I don't want to see is to see women limiting themselves by saying, I can't get funded. And this is not you, but I'm saying, I don't want to see women limiting themselves by saying, I can't get funding. And I would be very happy with a company that could sustain me and my family, as opposed to saying, I could grow something, but I could grow it organically and I can scale, but I can grow it in a way that doesn't necessarily need venture capital. I actually spend a lot of my time, take words like modesty, humility, or hope out of the vocabulary. So it's not a matter of, I hope to achieve these things. It's we will achieve these things, or even we are achieving these things. From Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs, it's Ideas Elevated, the podcast that elevates innovative entrepreneurs and their ideas. I'm Danielle Kahn, the head of Lift Labs, and today we're bringing you a special episode focusing on the life of female founders. Earlier this year, we were inspired by our community to launch a female founder and funder meetup group for women to ask each other off-the-record questions. It's become a popular place for insights on everything from founding to fundraising. Today, we're giving you a seat at that table. We'll talk about the access and funding gap, what's being done to overcome it, and lessons for all women in starting and growing a business. You'll hear from a university professor who runs an angel investment group, an expert on unconscious bias, and a bootstrapping entrepreneur. Important advice for women and men is now on Ideas Elevated. Last, I guess, maybe in April, we started a female founder and funder meetup the fourth Friday of every month. And every single month, more and more women keep showing up. It has become a really safe place for founders and funders to ask questions that they may have been a little fearful to ask before. And every time we show up, it is very inspiring. One of the people whose idea it was to run that is Ellen Weber with us today. Ellen is the executive director of Temple University's Innovation and Entrepreneurship Institute and Mid-Atlantic Diamond Ventures. She also is the executive director of Robin Hood Ventures, a leading angel group that is fueling startup growth right here in Philadelphia. Welcome, Ellen. Thank you. Next up, as one of our guests, Carolyn Horner, the co-founder of Gen Z. And Gen Z is an app that makes it easy for parents to buy perfectly fitting shoes for young kids. And then our next guest is Zway Kwok. And she is the author, founder, and CEO of Calm Clarity. And uh, Zway grew up in Philadelphia, in the inner city. She graduated from Harvard, Wharton, built an international career in management consulting and private equity. She started life in poverty as a refugee from Vietnam. And she is really now building a company called Calm Clarity to share the neuroscience techniques that she developed to heal post-traumatic stress disorder. I can't wait to hear more, more from you. So welcome. Thank you. Yeah. And welcome, everybody. First, let's just start with a, a basic question of why did you show up? Why did the female founder funder meetup appeal to you? And Carolyn, do you want to start with that? Sure. So my co-founder Eve and I came to the first meetup mainly because we were so excited that something like this was happening in Philadelphia. We had just started raising our seed round for our company, Gen Z, um, and really needed 
not only mentors who were funders, but also founders themselves and had gone through this process. Um, and so this really was the best place to find those people and who could walk us through the process. What have you found so far the most valuable tip that you've learned at the meetup? Probably to be patient. I think you jump into the seed round and think that things are going to happen really fast. And really what mentors like Ellen have actually taught us is it takes a lot of patience and learning and reiterating on your pitch and your deck and your company vision to start making traction with funders here in Philadelphia. And so if you get a no the first time from a particular angel group or investment group, that's not always a no. And to keep going and showing that you're making improvement actually gets the conversation further in the long run. Great. Sway, what about you? What, what brings you to Lift Labs and, and this meetup? Sure. Well, I have an interesting background in the sense that I used to be a funder. Mm -hmm. I used to do private equity, growth capital investments in Southeast Asia, but I'm not that familiar with the investment community here in Philadelphia. And one thing I realized, you know, from my work is that social capital really, really matters. And so investors are more willing to talk to you and open the door for you if they know who you are. And it's a lot easier to get connected if you are part of a community. And so I've been going to Philly New Tech meetups and a number of other resources, but found that in that space, there was always only like a handful of women, like it's like 10% women max and, and not very many people of color either. And so I was really curious what a female founder community would feel like, because I'd never been part of such a community before. And so I thought, let's just show up and, and, and experience this. And I've been pleasantly surprised how nurturing and how authentic and vulnerable people are here and how invested that the funders are. People like Ellen and Beth and others who come are genuinely caring and they really want to see us succeed. And so the level of information sharing and resources that people are providing is top notch. And that's why I keep coming back. Great. What's the number one tip that you've been given since coming to this that you keep in the back of your head? Ellen said something like that today. Be aggressive. Don't be conservative. And I think that's something that really is a challenge for me and a lot of women is that we do tend to be very modest about what we can achieve and what milestones that we can go for. And one of the difference I've seen in terms of gender, because I was of, on the funding side, is that male entrepreneurs, they just shoot for the sky and they don't care if the numbers make no sense. Whereas I think many women are very meticulous about these numbers and we want to feel that we can really back it up. And so I have to keep reminding myself that I got this and I can do this. But a lot of times I do, you know, that self-talk is quite critical. That's a great point. I remember reading once that when there's a job posted, men will apply to a job that they're not qualified for and women will not. And it's probably the same thing when walking in and asking a funder for money they feel a need to be perfect and have something finished before throwing their idea on the wall and saying, hey, would you fund this? So, Ellen, mm -hmm. you get to hear a lot of pitches <laughs> as a professor, but as a someone who runs an angel group and is an investor herself. Talk about this from your perspective. And before we start, uh, the one thing I, I definitely want to give a shout out, it was Ellen's idea. We were chatting about, you know, the need for this group. And she had said, you know, it'd be great to do a regular meetup. And it generally has been volunteer run. And it just hasn't stuck because there isn't someone running it. Um, 
And so we've collaborated on this event and Melissa Lay on our team at Lift Labs is the one who does all of the program management, make sure that that it happens. So I guess starting from thank you for uh, thank you for this great idea and, and being such a great collaborator. And um, from your perspective, you know, you've been through this for many years and you've seen what works, you've seen what fails, you know, from a from a meetup group and, and a community of, of women building companies and funding them. Why is something like this so valuable? There's a number of women funders in the region who have been doing everything we can to eliminate the funding gap for women entrepreneurs. And we all, we all know the details behind that. And just as Danielle said, we all do it in our spare time, you know, walk and talks and taking meetings and things like that. And we just felt so strongly that if we could create a forum that made it really safe for women to be able to ask the questions and to get to know us, that we could really create something great. And it's just been so wonderful seeing people show up every month. And as you said, the funders have been really committed to this too, which I've been excited to see. And we're getting just as much out of it as the founders are because we can really focus our energy and efforts in helping people. And it's just been, it's been terrific. And we've had people who have come in. We had last time, I think somebody came from New York. Someone came down, came in from Denver. I think more and more they're going to hear about this and want to attend and be a part of it. Today's event, 50% of the crowd had not been here before. So the more newcomers come to the table is very exciting as well. And, you know, you've been through this before <laughs> for many years. Why is a safe place so important for women? So there's a number of things. I think sometimes we talked about the perfection issue. I think sometimes women may be afraid to ask questions to appear dumb, that they feel that they should know these things. And there's no way you could know these things if you haven't been through it before. And so I think just saying, it's okay to ask any question you want. And I hope everyone feels like their questions are being, you know, treated respectfully. I think it's that idea of there truly any questions you want to ask are fine. And I think that's what's been so important. And just making sure you get hurt. Sometimes, you know, I still find in the business world when I'm in a meeting and I'm I'm the woman at the table and there's five guys, I, I can't get my word heard. Watching the debates has been fascinating watching the different techniques that women have to use to be heard without being perceived as interrupting. And so I just think having a place where all questions are safe and we're going to start with the fundamentals and build our way up, you know, with a little bit of presentation and then the one-on-one -on -one hours, I just think that's a good way to go. Just as a follow-up to what uh, Zway mentioned earlier, you said something this morning that stood out to me. One of the founders here talked about modesty or being conservative and you gave her really great advice, which I would love you to share. With, no, with I everyone. just said, I said, take words like modesty, you know, humility, the word just or hope or hope out of the vocabulary. So it's not a matter of, I hope to achieve these things. It's we will achieve these things, or even we are achieving these things by doing this, this, and this. And so that is one of the things I still see women doing, kind of minimizing progress or, you know, having this modesty that I think can be defeating, especially when talking to men who don't have that kind of filter. 
So yeah, that is my advice. That's awesome. Carolyn, what are some of the struggles you've been going through as a female founder? I think it touches on some points that we were making before in terms of what women who are pitching, what standards they're held to as opposed to their male counterparts. And so you hear often that women founders are judged on their metrics, even if they're at the same stage as other companies that have an idea, have a product that's working, that's in the market, maybe have early adopters. We got questions immediately after launch about our customer acquisition costs and our lifetime value. And these are metrics that companies don't really start understanding for a few months. And we were being asked about them on day one. And so sometimes that felt like a little premature and that rather than being just judged on our idea and our ability to get those numbers to where they needed to be, they needed to be there at that moment. And so I think a lot of female founders actually experience that when they're fundraising. And Zway, what about you? What are some of uh, your building calm clarity? What are you seeing as a female founder that, you know, you think is very different journey than say a male founder would be? I think sometimes these challenges create opportunities and there is a lot of unconscious bias, especially when you're a woman and you're a woman of color. And so I decided to just try to embrace it by creating an unconscious bias training to turn this type of handicap into a strength. And so now I go to companies where, you know, maybe there aren't a lot of females in leadership positions or people of color who are represented in leadership positions and talk about how they could be more inclusive. And because of my own background and the fact that I navigate such wide socioeconomic spaces, right, I go from the inner city to, you know, CEO boardrooms, um, there's some credibility there on what it takes to succeed and to navigate issues of bias, prejudice, discrimination and exclusion. So I find if you can take all these things that work against you and turn them into strengths, then you have actually even more expertise than the people who you're coming to. And so what I found interesting about the VC world is that most of the VCs are men. And when they see startup leaders who are male and they see themselves in them, they can see the upside. But when female founders come in and they're not used to seeing female founders, then the amygdala activates and they're thinking about the downside, which is why they're asking these questions. And then it becomes your job to help them activate their dopamine system and see the upside, right? So you can use neuroscience to work in your favor. And so that's been the story of my life, thinking through all the ways in, my, in which my brain can work against me and thinking through what it would what it take to rewire my brain so that I can be more successful. And by doing that, how can I help change society and change mindsets and change the way other people operate in the world so they can all function and realize, like function at their fullest potential? The interesting thing, just to add on to what you were saying, is that it's not just men that ask women the downside questions. So research shows that women funders also immediately go to the downside questions. Now, you were talking about metrics before, and I see that as a little bit different. And I had not observed that women get asked more questions about metrics than men do. So I'm going to pay attention to that, you know, in the next few presentation sessions. But it is true that I always do encourage women. Well, I encourage everyone to use metrics, but I really encourage women to, because I think it is one of the things that helps them tell the story. I will say I do observe men throwing out the metrics early there and whether they're true or not, I don't know. And when a woman comes in with a metric, you know that they have researched that to the nth degree and it's a perfect 
number. So I'm going to have to really pay attention. I think that's an interesting point that you brought up. Yeah, I think there are two types of metrics, one about the industry. And that's really helped us because oftentimes when we walk into a, a room of investors that aren't that diverse, the product that I'm building is a shoe sizing app for kids. And so our core customer are young, busy millennial parents, and that's not often who I'm pitching to. And so framing the conversation with, you know, this is a mobile app. A lot of people are, are shopping on mobile apps. A lot of millennials are becoming parents. I um, mean, and, and really uh, emphasizing that with metrics has been helpful. But there is right after launch having to understand like what the average order value was and being able to predict that over a couple years just seemed a little aggressive. And I'm, I'm curious, Ellen, just when you're asking for three year projections, what are the main reasonings behind that in terms of like understanding where you are in six months compared to where you're going in three years? I just want to understand your mindset that you're thinking about building out a scalable company and that you're thinking about which markets you're going to tap into and that you have kind of like a, a reasonable approach to we are going to lose money the first like sometimes we'll see forecasts that show in year one they don't say 2019 they say in year one we're going to have five million of sales well there's no way in year one you're going to have five million of sales right so we're really just looking for how do you think about these things how big are you trying to grow do you understand your costs and what would your margins look like? We don't have any expectation of accuracy in the projections. And that's one of the things I try and tell people. It's really about how you're thinking. Our meetup that we do once a month is once a month for a couple hours. What are you doing outside of that on a regular basis that you find most useful to you in terms of resources, networking? one-on-one -on -one meetings? How do you stay focused? What Talk about a little bit about your process as founders. Sway, so, do you want to start with that? I found it really helpful to build a board. And so I actually am a social entrepreneur. I run uh, two social ventures. The first one is Calm Clarity, where we take a neuroscience and mindfulness approach to tackling social challenges. And, you know, unconscious bias being one of the biggest social challenges there is right now. And one of the things I realize is a barrier for socioeconomic inclusion is that a lot of first generation college students, they go to college, they can't navigate it. They don't have the resources or the life skills to do so. There's no mentors or role models. And then many of them fall through the cracks, drop out of school, don't come back. And the ones that do graduate, like myself, I was unemployed for six months, right? It took a while to find a job. And a lot of it was because of the lack of social capital, just not knowing who to talk to, how to get yourself into the right information flow. And I feel like that challenge is still here with me as a first generation college graduate, as a person of color from the inner city whose parents can't open doors. And in fact, I spent a lot of time taking care of my parents and helping them navigate the spaces that they have to go through. And I therefore make a big effort to build a board so that I have access to their social capital. And I try to check in with them, tell them what's going on and ask them for help in solving some of the challenges I face. They would all say I could be more proactive. Sometimes I don't like asking for help unless I feel like I have a path forward. I feel like I have to prove that I deserve the help before I ask for it, which I think it's still like a Jedi mind game I need to get over. And the other thing that it's really helpful. It's to build, 
I don't know what you call this, but like a community of founders around me. So this female founders group is new and very helpful. But one of my social ventures, the Collective Success Network, got accepted into the social impact cohort at CIC, Cambridge Innovation Center at 3675 Market Street. And that cohort, you know, includes Coded by Kids, Open Access Philly, um, and it's been really wonderful to run into these other founders and check in with them and hear about their issues. And, you know, especially people of color, because I think there are extra barriers that people of color face coming from non-dominant culture, not having the right vocabulary or the language, not understanding the cultural references and this continuous feeling of being out of place and being set up like as a model minority can create a lot of tension inside us. And especially for me, since I have the Harvard background, the Wharton background, like I am, you know, what people point to as a model minority, but I still have this challenge of not knowing where I'm going, right? Having no role models, having parents who I have to take care of and um, figuring out how to navigate all of my personal responsibilities and the violence in my community where I live. And yet like having to compete for the same resources at the same level and standard as people who come from much more affluent backgrounds. So that's like a lot of psychological issues and challenges and barriers. And having other founders who I can talk through that with has been really useful. Without getting into details or who has said things, what are some of the trends you see in that group, you know, for for those just as an eye opener for people who maybe wouldn't be a part of a not just gender, but ethnically diverse group of founders, you know, what are some of the real pain points there that you wish other people realized were a reality for you and others? There's this need to constantly prove yourself. And someone mentioned this phrase to me, which I found really helpful. They call it racial combat fatigue. Just having to deal with all these innocent questions about where you're from, whether you're educated, like why you qualified to be here, justifying your presence in the room. I feel like I'm continuously underestimated because I'm quiet, I'm introverted, I'm not very aggressive until I take the podium and I start speaking. They're like, oh, you're the speaker. I mean, I showed up at places and been asked if I'm the help, you know, because they just, they assume the person who looks like me, it's not going to be the speaker. And I just have to keep letting that go and just being like, you know, these people have stereotypes and associations of what people like me look like and what we do. They have no idea that I can be the boss or I can be the keynote speaker. So again and again, you know, I just have to keep letting this go and just doing the best job I can do in that moment. Very insightful. Carolyn, what about you? What, what do you do to stay energized and focused? Who are you surrounding yourself with? What's your, what's your week look like? My answer mimics sways in a lot of ways, mainly because I am a part of two meetup groups. One is with new founders in Philadelphia that are at a similar stage um, that Gen Z is. And we meet for dinner once a month and talk through similar problems that we're all having or not really problems, but just like big projects that we're tackling. So that's really helpful. And the second meetup is a group of women who are in the e-commerce world. And we again meet for dinner once a month. And so that's a really personal community that we can really be vulnerable and, and open up and also learn from each other. It's, you know, getting drinks for 20 minutes, but then really digging into that project. And then also, I think it's important to have a life outside of your company and your startup. For a couple of years, all I wanted to do was be surrounded by other people in the startup world because they really understood what I was doing. And my co-founder and I have since started taking a step back and sometimes, 
you know, making time for our friends and family that is really important to us. Awesome. Alan, as you look at the next five years in the female founder funder landscape, we're still at, I think it's 2.2% of all funding coming from VCs is going to female founders. Mm -hmm. And that was like two years in a row flat at 2.2%. And actually the percentage of funding going to women of color, I think is about 0.25%, which is another number right. that has also, to be. just the sad reality mm -hmm. all, all around. Mm -hmm. How does the game change five years from now? What does it look like? What would you envision? What's the dream? And actually, what do you think it would take? Mm -hmm. What's the moonshot on funding and investment that you think could get us there even faster? Well, I think there's a few things that need to happen. I think some of the women who are fundraising now have to have an exit, right? It's all about exits because that's what creates a community. And so when some of those women have exits and then they can fund, they'll fund other women that you need more funders in the region, but you also, it's not just people who are funders, but it's people who have had exits and it becomes I think people who might have a um, unconscious bias about women, you know, once you start hearing about a lot of women having exits, I think it becomes, it just takes away whatever unconscious bias that they may have. So I think exits is really the key to success. So whatever we can do to help women in the community have exits, I think that will, that'll really move the needle. That makes a lot of sense. And I think for the two founders here, what's the one thing that you wish existed now that you think is not in the ecosystem as a, either a support mechanism or, again, if you had a moonshot five years from now, what's the one thing you think will make it easier to raise money or not raise money, you know, and easier to bootstrap or easier to sell into a large company? What, what's that one thing that, that you think is the secret sauce or missing from the story today? When you're at a stage like we are where Gen Z's working, we're on the app store, we have about 10,000 users, but we're not at a stage where we're big enough to be raising a series A round. It sometimes feels like we're too small to also be raising a seed round. So we're in this like weird in-between stage where those type of investors are really hard to identify. And so through our seed round, I'll call it, we had so many yes, but not nows. And so I think the one thing that could really change this ecosystem or really be better, at least for early stage founders to understand is what do you do when you're in that stage and what angel investors are there that would be willing to write a 25 or $50,000 check for the stage you're at. And I think those angels are hidden and you have to know other founders who have gotten investment from them um, or get warm introductions because you can't really find them on LinkedIn. And so that sort of community in Philadelphia, I think, could really, really boost the startup scene here. And whether that's Philadelphia or any other, I'd I say, like second, yeah. but even, you know, second, third tier cities mm -hmm. that are not New York and the Valley <laughs> um, and Tel Aviv. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're definitely the, the angel networks. And I, just as a follow up on that, Ellen, because you that's your world. What's the secret sauce of getting more angel investors and more angel investors to say yes at that stage. So one way of getting more angel investors, I, again, it comes back to exits, 
right? And that's that is one of the things that affects second and third tier cities. And having even people in the large strategic companies think about being angel investors. Typically, it's entrepreneurs who become angel investors. If we can train and educate people in some of the large strategics to be investors, I think that would be great. In some cities, you see more movement. You know, the strategics launch tons and tons of startups. And in some communities, you don't see that as much. So I think, I think that's going to be something that becomes important. So that's what so I think there's education required that to help people understand that you can be an early stage investor. I think helping people learn that they can pool money. I mean, so a lot of regions have these angel groups, right? But exactly what Carolyn was talking about is how do you access the individual investors who are willing to write a check today And in return, they usually want some involvement with the company and then they'll bring it to the larger groups. So your question is, how do we create these people? And I think, you know, again, it's more exits. It's educating people on becoming investors and it's finding a way to decrease the friction in introducing some of the up and coming companies to these, you know, individual investors. That's great. And what what about you? So my path is a bit different because... We decided to bootstrap. And even the board told me, you're going to bootstrap this because it's a social venture and we don't really see a lot of companies interested in not having an exit, right? What we want to do is fund more social impact work. And we've also have a hybrid model where there's a nonprofit arm that allows us to raise uh, tax deductible contributions. And as I think about maybe what's missing, perhaps there's not enough guidelines around how do you start a business? How do you decide if bootstrapping is the right path versus raising investment? And having worked in the private equity VC space, there's a lot of negative reasons where I don't want to bring in investors because they can take over and hijack your mission. They can hijack your purpose. They can force an exit. The term sheets are very onerous. There's a lot of reasons why you may want to maintain full control. And I don't feel like that's discussed enough. And I think even though it would be nice for that 2.2% to increase to 50%, I kind of wonder if some of it may be that women are designing companies that may not be venture friendly. And the VC world was designed by men. It's a culture that is a very bro culture and it can turn off a lot of women investors as well. And it may not have a a mission. It may not have a social impact focus, right? It's, it's all about numbers in many ways and getting big, big, big exits. And there are mental health issues. A lot of the most successful founders are actually anxiety written and they can't sleep. So there are not a lot of negatives in the space that people don't really talk about the dark side of VCs and, and successful startups. So I just kind of wonder if there should be more transparency instead of just these stories of these unicorns being so successful, but what did it take for them to become unicorns and are the cost worth it, right? And maybe women who bootstrap, like Sarah Blakely from Spanx, you know, she's a billionaire and there's no VCs profiting off what she does. She has full control. And and that's kind of my role model is try to become her rather than, you know, the people behind Facebook or, you know, Snapchat. I'd like to amplify that. I think there is such a focus on funding for the sake of funding. And that's what is rewarded and celebrated as opposed to people who are growing companies. And I think that is something we need to do. We need to celebrate more companies that grow. 
What I don't want to see is to see women limiting themselves by saying, I can't get funded. And this is not you, but I'm saying, I don't want to see women limiting themselves by saying, I can't get funding. And I would be very happy with a company that could sustain me and my family, as opposed to saying, I could grow something, but I could grow it organically and I can scale, but I can grow it in a way that doesn't necessarily need venture capital. I actually spend a lot of my time talking to people, trying to convince them not to go down that path unless they absolutely have to. And there are certain companies, for example, e-commerce companies that have to go down that path, but not every company does. And so I do think you're really onto something that we need to celebrate people who build companies without taking in a lot of, you know, early so maybe stage the money. the measurement that everyone's using right now of the 2.2% or whatever it is, is like the wrong thing to be watching. You know, there's probably other data points that we should start watching more closely on customer growth, sales. Exactly. Start reporting out on those a little bit more. And, you know, it starts very early. University Entrepreneurship Center rankings are based on number of companies started and amount of money funded. And I take great issue to that um, because they're not looking at revenue or number of employees at all. So you have to look or social impact. And I think you have to look at all of these things. Love it. All right. So in the last couple of minutes, when you think about the success of your companies and your teams, you know, whether that's students you're teaching or your portfolio companies or your team members, your employees, what's the lesson that you want them to learn from some of your struggles that you've had? I talk a lot about brain activation, how we can be very different people depending on how our neural networks are activated. In brain 1.0, our fight or flight system takes over. In brain 2.0, the reward system, the dopamine system makes us chase extrinsic rewards. And then in brain 3.0, we have a sense of self-mastery and well-being, um, harmony. We do things aligned with our values. It sounds so easy when you put it that way, but I struggle myself as a founder not to be distracted by all the things that activate Brain 2.0, like getting the funding, getting the accolades in the press, getting, you know, a big profile done on me in some newspaper. Like there's so many things that distract you from the bigger picture of why you're doing what you're doing. And the most important thing is to keep reminding yourself, why are you in this if the rewards don't come, I mean, they come and go, right? Being in a movie is awesome. I don't know if that will change my life, but like it comes and goes. And why am I really here? Why am I really doing this? And I think if, as long as I remember the ultimate purpose is to help people, you know, self-actualize, to fulfill their potential, to help organizations break all the barriers that keep them stuck with self-limiting patterns and toxic behaviors. Like if we can keep people doing that, that's why I'm here. But it, Every time there's a milestone, even that will trigger brain 1.0 because I get really scared. I'm like, oh my God, like we just hit a milestone that I didn't think would actually happen. Like when the book was published, I spent months in anxiety being like, they're going to hate the book. They're going to hate the book. And finally, Fast Company picked it as one of the best books of 2018. I was like, okay, I won't feel that way anymore. But, But you just keep seeing these things happen and you just 
create space for self-care, for compassion, because it is a roller coaster. You know, when you're building a company, the successes also create like huge amounts of anxiety. There's no time in which you don't feel anxiety as a founder. And that's the one thing I've come to accept that it's never going to feel easy. And I imagine like the people who start Facebook every day, they have some fire that they have to put out and it never really gets to the sense where everything feels calm and stable because there's so much uncertainty. There's so much coming at you and you have to choose to bring yourself into bring 3.0 because the environment doesn't do that. That's a great point. Carolyn, what about you? Well, I'm going to talk about my co-founder because she's not here and we normally do everything together. But the biggest takeaway in terms of our team structure is having our relationship be really strong and have that emanate through the rest of the team. And so we've spent a lot of time over the past two and a half years really working on ourselves and how to work together the best. It's funny that our CTO, the marketing team we're working with now, one of the first things that they always, when we interviewed them, that they'll say is, this is the first time I'm talking to all-female founding team. Um, And so I think that adds a layer of pressure because we're then thinking, well, what is it like when they work with those two guys over there? And we want to be able to match or exceed their expectations. But I think they see us working really hard to answer the questions and listen and learn from them. Um, And I think that's something that they they really respect and have come to respect over the past couple of years as well. And so just in terms of a team, it starts at the top. And I think as long as Eve and I we listen to each other and we listen to everyone else on the team. We can continue to really grow stronger. Great. And Ellen, just, I guess, in wrapping things up, you've been doing this for many years. I remember talking you to you. saying many years, well, here's Danielle. The thing. I, remember, <laughs> I remember 10 years talking to you. I was on vacation at the beach and I was starting, you know, my own thing. And you spent, I think, two hours on the phone with me, just giving me so many great insights on startups and and investment and not getting investment and all those kinds of things. What's the thing that you like the one thing that that you continuously pass on to people, whether it's somebody on your team, your students, what are some of the the greatest lessons that you'd share? I can't think of just one. I think, you know, one of the things that I've really been focusing on with students lately is to really focus on understanding your business. Like again, and way before you start looking for funding is to really define what it is that you're doing, clear value proposition, go out and test it with people. I think that's probably the thing that I, you know, I really pound on the most because it's hard to think about the other stuff till you know if you've got something, you know, that resonates. Great. Well, thank you all three of you for doing this today and for sharing so many great insights. It's been great. So with me has been Zwe Kwok, Carolyn Horner, Ellen Weber, and you have been listening to Ideas Elevated, the podcast of Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs. Be sure to subscribe to the show and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. For more info and to find us on social, head to ComcastNBCULift.com or check out the show notes. Ideas Elevated is a Q9 production. This episode was produced by my friend Kevin Schmidlin with associate production by Angela Gervasi and Lauren Hunter. Editing by Max Graham. Original music by Lee Rosevere. And 
theme music by The Last Generation on film. From Lift Labs, I'm Danielle Kahn. Until next time. <laughs>